Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, January 11th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, we're, we're back. What, what are we going to do with us being back? Gosh, I, I kind of forget what we do here. I think it has something to do with bad faith discussion mm-hmm. and sitting from the ivory tower. We're, we're pure familiar. partisans. We uh, partisan hacks. Yeah, yeah. That's, well, that that was our other title for this show, the Partisan Hack Show. Well, I thought it was also going to be George Soros check cashing our us. Um, <laughs> Because it's funny because I I didn't know anybody said that except us. And then I saw someone who wasn't even a friend of mine post on a friend of mine's page like, oh, yeah, I'm still waiting to cash that Soros check. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, it's it's a bigger thing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's I mean, enough people insinuate that everyone's just getting checks from George Soros that people are going to make jokes that, hey, where's my check from George Soros? You know? I, we all want him. I was we enough of a them. leftist, neoliberal, you know, every contradicting leftist faction shill that I need my check. <laughs> but anyway, 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 enough of the jokes on that. We're here to have good faith conversation. Um, we recognize that we're only human um, and that we don't know everything. We are not on the ivory tower. Um, but definitely conversations today, um, don't lead themselves to both sides ism. Do they heaven? No. Uh, um, this is fairly cut and dried and there's no point in pretending otherwise. Yeah. And, so let, let's get into it. What what are we talking about that's pretty cut and dry? Uh, we're talking about an armed attack on the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., where thousands of pro-Trump protesters um, armed with, with guns and other weapons took to the Capitol building, barged their way in, and uh, appeared ready to violently capture members of the United States Congress uh, and were apparently thwarted by just mere minutes from being able to succeed in that event before the the congressional delegation was uh, rescued or otherwise evacuated. So not good times, not good times. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, how, how this, I mean, it all starts with Trump as it always does. I mean, what a guy. I mean, I do. Lo- He's just some dude. I don't know. You know, I, I, I really like the just some guy theory, <laughs> but I think he may not be just some guy. <laughs> like I can concede that like all the other presidents are just some guy, but I, I, I you know, you know, I, I, there's enough there that's just kind of off the wall that I, I don't know if he's just some guy. Um, um, but really straining our theoretical bounds. Right yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, and I also like that. We've never talked on the podcast about the just some guy theory. And that's something that we've come up in the next <laughs> few weeks. So anyway, everybody loves talking about things that we don't have a basis on, but so, you know, yeah, it, it, you know, it's been a while since we've 
we've done this. And if I remember correctly, the last time we talked, we were, at least I was at least marginally hopeful that the relevant players in the election, you know, Trump trying to steal the election charade were at least saying no. Like it didn't have full Republican Party buy-in. Um, there are still there were still plenty of people who did it, but like there weren't any states attorneys generals, attorneys general is the plural, who you know uh, went along with the charade, or at least the no 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 that was wrong. There were plenty of attorneys general who went along with the charade, but it was. Uh, states, secretaries of states who conducted the elections in Republican states who were uh, swing states didn't go along with the charade. Um, And then, like, Mitch McConnell didn't go along with it. And, you know, enough, at least seemingly a majority of the Republican Party didn't go along with it. So that gave me hope that it wouldn't be in, you know, it wouldn't actually like the stupid, shitty, bad scenario, like the ultimate doomsday scenario didn't happen, which is relatively good. But what has also transpired is not good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So Trump kept beating the train, you know, or (laughs) man, I I just combined two euphemisms. (laughs) What, what is beating the train? <laughs> kept, tr- Trump kept beating the drum that this election was a landslide and it was stolen from him. And, you know, most Republicans just kind of treated it as theater, you know, let him do all the lawsuits that they knew were going to fail. Um, I think out of all of the 60 plus lawsuits, he only won one. And that was to, instead of his observers allowed to be 10 feet away from the counting, they were now able to be six feet away from the counting. Um, wow. Yeah. Big win. Big win. Um, and, you know, just nothing ever materialized, but. Trump kept pushing that on January 6th was going to be the day. January 6th was going to be the day because that was the day that Congress certified the results of the Electoral College for, you know, the the electing of the president. This is, you know, this is a day where the members of Congress take a bunch of votes to certify and accept each state's electors as valid. And normally, you know, it's, it's, it's just ceremonial. Um, historically, there hasn't been almost anybody who uh, votes no on any of the electors. But the idea was that there was going to make a stink. And Trump made up uh, this idea that Mike Pence could <laughs> unilaterally laterally um, throw the results back to the states, not accept them, and then like throw the election to Trump. And so for a long time, Trump had been 
making this a big day that, you know, oh, you'll see on January 6th, January 6th. And, and, and he ended up holding a rally before, you know, the, the, the attempted insurrection where he basically fed all the same lies. And, you know, like a lot of us know it's just theater, but for a good amount of people, it's not <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like people, you know, even if the majority don't, most people are going to take the president or, or at least some people are going to take the president of the United States seriously when they say there's voter fraud <laughs> and that they've been defrauded. And if they're a supporter of them, they want to do something about it. And so, yeah. and so a good number of people who fit that category of being Trump supporters who believe that the election was stolen decided to do something about it on January 6th. Um, yeah, attempting and succeeding in storming the Capitol building, which is, and it, it, it was very close to being much, much more like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure you've been reading or at least seen some of the same coverage I have from like Chris Hayes, where mm-hmm. like this, like people were intent on going in and taking prisoners. Like if they had been able to get, you know, get to the, like the Senate chambers when there were still senators in there. They were intent on like taking hostages and there was also widespread chance of hang Mike Pence. Yeah. Like, go ahead. I just, I know there's been like a lot of discussion of, you know, how seriously can we really take these people? But I think when, um, you, you have evidence turn up that one of the people who was arrested, had been talking with other people who were at the the riot saying that he he was prepared to put a bullet in nancy pelosi's head and then that guy shows up and storms the capitol building why why should we not believe that he would have done that you know if he had the chance why why should we believe that the people who did storm the capitol and kill a capitol police officer and break property and replace American flags with Trump flags. Why, why would we ever not take them at face value when they bring zip ties and gallows and say, no, we're coming here to kill congressional leaders. Right. Like, I feel like with a lot of right wing violence or threats of violence, like there's always a lot of threats out there from that side of the world uh, or the spectrum. And a lot of it ends up just being, you know, for, you know, they say it's just for show. It's just posturing it. You know, it's, it's toxic, toxic masculinity at its best. But I mean, this isn't just some kid calling in a bomb threat or something or saying, Oh, I'm going to fucking, you know, I hate everybody. I'm going to shoot the place up. Like these people have taken actual concrete steps towards that. Like, it's just not a benign thing. Um, Mm-hmm. And they showed up. They showed up prepared. Um, they, you know, they had T-shirts made for 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 storming the Capitol. And it's just it, 
and and you know what's even crazy is that what what was it just a few days before it came out that Trump was doing blatant election fraud, trying to pressure the the attorney general or the secretary of state of Georgia to try and find votes for him. Like <laughs> we just need to find eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes. Yeah, you know, just yeah, find. Yeah, one of they're they're on the floor. They're in the trash. Maybe there's some that got uh, you know stuck to the top of the oven. Go go get them. Yeah, and 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 then we'll win by one vote. That's literally the amount that he gave <laughs> was the amount <laughs> needed to win by one vote. And like, oh my gosh, it's just it's crazy that it's all come to this. It, it's not surprising. It's not surprising. Like, it, it's. It's it, it's been the culmination of all of this. Like Trump, as part of his personality, he cannot lose. And losing the election, he lost. <laughs> and he is somebody who where, you know, if he can't, he does the minimum amount of work that makes it justifiable to him that he can spin it that he won. Like that that really seems to be what motivates him. Like every piece of legislation that he's passed, he has seemingly done the least amount of work that he deems needed to be able to claim credit, at least somewhat credit for what it did or anything. You know, and if it doesn't require any work for him to justify in his head that he can claim credit for it, then he doesn't do any work. But it seems like this election has been his number one priority since the election happened. As, you know, the coronavirus ravages the country, we're now over 4,000 deaths a day. You know, we're in the greatest, uh, you know, economic decline that we've seen in a good long while. Millions of people are unemployed, underemployed, and, you know, still face the risks at work. And he's busy trying to, like, I don't know, bully secretaries of state into, like, you know, just invalidating the elections. And, you know, of course, you know, if and and there are reports that, you know, he was delighted in this. Mm hmm. And the only reason he told them to, you know, told the protesters to stop was because he could face legal ramifications of it. And mm -hmm. like this guy needs to be out of office. Like, like, I don't. I, the, I remember when he was impeached. I, I don't remember who. It may have been uh, Lisa Murkowski or someone like that who who said, you know... Like, oh, he learned his lesson. Yeah. No. Yeah, it was either Murkowski or Collins. But yeah, no, clearly not. <laughs> has Trump ever learned a lesson? Like, for the positive good. Like, <laughs> like I'm sure he's learned lessons on how to better do his shtick. But has he ever learned a lesson that goes, you know, where he's taken to not do his shtick? No. And, you know, we should have fucking impeached him. 
We need to impeach him now. <laughs> he needs to be out of office because what? Uh, we have 10 more days or nine more days when this is released. Like, I'm sure he's going to try and ramp it up. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not going to go why with a whimper. He? Yeah, why wouldn't he? Like, his magical ability is to ramp things up when seemingly it can't get ramped up anymore. You know, why would he so publicly announce that he won't be attending the inauguration? You know, not to get into a conspiratorial mindset, but it reads to me like, hey, I won't be there. So, you know, next violent mob, if you want to be there, I'll be safe. Right. Oh, God, just to think about what that day would be like. Like, will it have to be that Joe Biden gets sworn in in like a private ceremony? Because of a, a, a security threat of mobs of like actually intent violent protesters. Like, and, and it's just, I mean, it's just, I, I think, I mean, maybe we'll move into this portion of the show, but just all the bad takes on this. Like, like people likening these people to to the the Black Lives Matter protests of earlier in the year, like you know some of the rioters that happened at those, and it's like, you know, there's a difference between I don't know, burning down an Arby's and storming the Capitol, like, and again, you know, I like what I said about the you know when those riots happened earlier or last year. You know, I, I didn't have any qualms that the people who did those acts were going to face the law. Like, you know, mm-hmm. law enforcement is pretty good at finding people who do crimes like that, especially ones that were as publicized as they were. So, you know, they were going to face the law, you know, even if that you want that destruction to be avoided. Um, But fuck, you know, like, again, we had... People do an insurrection or attempt to attempt a coup, you know. Um, now there are some people with uh, pointy hats out there who have tried to say, "Oh, it was it didn't involve the the security forces or this or that." Or it it was a coup attempt. A, a coup by dissidents is is still a coup. Yeah, um, a bad attempt, but yeah, a bad attempt, still an attempt. Well, I I I feel like. America, we're so ready. We're we're so able to handle a threat from beyond, but we're not able to handle our own threat within. Like it's just a different of kind. Um, ah, I don't know. I've been ranting a lot, Evan. You rant some. <laughs> I mean, it just uh, the worst take that I saw on it was that. It's actually worse to burn down the Arby's because it's private property and the citizens, we have a right to overthrow our government when it's not working for us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of things wrong with that idea. Number one is that, um, well, let, let's say three things wrong with the idea. Thing number one that's wrong with it is the sort of intent, you know. Are, are we mad because there is, you know, mass injustice 
and people being murdered at higher rates just because of the color of their skin? Or are we mad that my favorite reality TV star wasn't popular among millions of other Americans? So that's number one. Number two is let's check out the underlying claim that we just can overthrow our government whenever. Um, I mean, I guess that there's definitely that strain of thought within democratic thinking and especially in the construct of our country that you know we have these guardrails in place that if the democracy isn't serving us anymore then you know we get rid of it violently i guess but that doesn't really hold a lot of water to me you know we're here in this collective government governance as long as we have free and fair elections and the ability to make our will known through representative democracy then there's really nothing that's going to justify an armed insurrection which gets to the final problem with that issue is that here i think intent matters a lot and if you're trying to say that we that this coup attempt was just a manifestation of the legitimate power of the people to overthrow their government when it no longer serves them the premise that the government is no longer serving them has to be true which would have to mean that there is some fundamental corruption or malfunction which is no longer allowing the will of the people to be heard and the specific claim of supporters is that there has been this widespread election fraud that the American people truly want Donald Trump and somehow Joe Biden and the Democrats and Rosie O'Donnell and whoever else stole it. And that to me is the biggest lie of them all. There is no evidence for it. It has been roundly defeated in courts. Memes are not evidence. You know, you can post whatever you want using whatever half-baked logic and incorrect statistics that you want but when you get into a court of law you need to actually be able to submit verifiable checkable facts you need to be able to construct arguments as to why your side is correct and except in one procedural case nothing has come through yeah if if somehow you're listening to this and you legitimately think there was election fraud or irregularities or anything, submit me the fucking evidence. I'm serious. Send it to me. I, I have no reason to believe it exists. Yeah. And so, no, this is not some patriotic duty where people are are fighting to take back the government that was wrongfully taken from them. The 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 truest facts of the case are that. Donald Trump was a massively unpopular president who lost by a wide margin the highest turnout election in modern American history and has been repeatedly suggesting without evidence that the election was somehow stolen from him. And despite the complete lack of evidence, a group of people decided that just because they wanted it to be true, it had to be true, and that justified them using violence to attempt to disrupt democracy for all 350 billion of us. Yeah. <laughs> There's my rant. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, one thing I've been try, thinking about somewhat lately is that in our society, we've started to take a more technocratic view of the world. I mean, this is kind of like the voxification of 
society where, you know, at, at one point we had opinions about things and, you know, you would have, you know, some vague ideas about why, but, um, but then, you know, it's like, you can come in and say, you know, science has the answer and all this stuff. And what has happened is that, or, or just, you know, even like on facts or fiction and it seems to be that, you know, like, you know, uh, the revolution of the United States was a blend of the facts that, you know, the British were ruling over the American society without representation and the feeling that that was unjust, which, you know, gave credence to, you know, a revolution being a, you know, a valid thing, you know, at least through the lens that we see it. Whereas the people are trying to incite a revolution just on the feeling that they're, you know, on the outside or that, you know, they have been wronged. But there is no evidence to bear it out. There's the disconnect. Whereas, you know, there the, the, it's almost like if I feel this certain way, whether it there's validity to it, that I get to ex- exert it. Like I get to exert my feelings, which is like on the way opposite side of most like technocratic kind of liberal things where it's like, we will only enact things through things that we truly know of this 1% or whatever, you know, it's just, I don't know. Well, I think the, the, the piece to this puzzle is that in the past when there was less content and more gatekeepers, you know, really, truly kooky stuff wouldn't find a home, wouldn't find a reputable or, you know, quasi-reputable backing. So, you know, if there was someone in, like, 1960 who thought that John F. Kennedy personally flew around the country stuffing ballot boxes, you know, there, there'd be nowhere to publish it, and that idea would be constrained to a, a couple of guys in tinfoil hats. But now, with this proliferation of media... You know, people don't really care what evidence comes from. I think I think that all evidence looks the same. You know, you're scrolling on your Facebook feed and you'll see a New York Times article right next to a meme from redderdead.org. You know, like it's just it almost sort of creates this false equivalency between all forms of content. And so if either through you know, malicious intent or ignorance or just, you know, willful blindness. If you want to believe the stuff coming from the less reputable sources, you now have plenty of ammunition to do that. And you can find eight articles from Breitbart explaining these alleged irregularities that don't hold up in court, that don't hold up to the scrutiny of actual fact-checking from legitimately reputable publications, and an avalanche of all the memes that you could ever dream of that, you know, certainly have no integrity in terms of how those are constructed. Um... So that you, the, the, the basic thing that I'm trying to get at, Joe, is this. There's always been seeds of 
conspiratorial thinking and bad faith, but they kind of got choked out in a more old school media environment without constant access to publication of every viewpoint. Right. In this modern environment, all the seeds get planted and find fertile soil. And it's not the truth that is the best fertilizer, but that emotional drive to believe what we want. It's like what Ezra Klein talks about in as part of why we're polarized. We all engage in motivated reasoning. That's a basic part of human psychology. But now in this polarized and digitized media landscape, it is able to proliferate exponentially in a way that we haven't seen before. Yeah, this was a uh, this was a point that came up in the uh, documentary "In Search of a Flat Earth." Um, it's by a guy named Dan Olson. His channel's Folding Ideas on YouTube, and it, the the documentary is on YouTube, and I highly recommend it for for kind of information on this kind of subject, but. You know, he he went into a lot into the flat earth stuff and his, you know, one of the things is that like, yeah, there's always been a segment of society who's conspiratorial. Like there, there are people who, you know, through whatever, you know, however their mind works and all that kind of stuff, they're susceptible to be, to buy into conspiracy theories and to consume that content. But what, you know, used to be is that you know, it's pretty hard for those people to communicate across lines. So maybe you had somebody who was conspiratorial, but, you know, they would kind of bake up their own thing. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot. I mean, I think maybe probably, uh, you know, the, the conspiracy theories about Jews are like some of the most prevalent and have been, you know, the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are, you know, some of the most prevalent out there. And I think that maybe, you know, because it was a little bit easier to, talk about it at different times of society and more accepted. But, you know, besides that, you know, it was like you didn't have access to conspiracy theory information on the reg. But what happened was, you know, we had the Internet and that was one thing. You know, if you were really into conspiracy theories, then you could seek those out and those would be out there. And that, you know, helps fuel things. But what really happened was with social media, because social media what they do is that they really try to find what's going to engage with you. And what ended up happening with social media algorithms is that they ended up being able to tell if someone would be in, was conspiratorial without them actually knowing it. So what the algorithm what would end up doing is just kind of trying to steadily feed them more and more extreme conspiratorial content. Because they wanted, because the algorithm wanted to increase engagement. That's what it does. And what it, you know, and if, you know, over however many, you know, data points, it could determine that you are, you know, you fit the profile of someone who's conspiratorial, it could spoon feed you these things and activate people into conspiracy theories that they otherwise wouldn't have in their day-to-day lives. And this is, you know, this is part of the problem. Like, mm-hmm. like our society, every society is full, hat, well, not full, but definitely has people who have a more conservative right-wing disposition 
who believes that the government should be overthrown just and and should be installed with a more authoritarian version of the government that takes care of the others whoever the vague others are now in the past getting those people to organize together to do i don't know their business or become a political movement or express themselves in a greater society has been a real issue because they're fragmented and they don't have any way, you know, and if someone leans towards that, I don't know if they're necessarily going to be searching out other people who think that like that. So what ends up coming up is that you come up with social media and you have these people being able to find themselves and the social media companies are actively interested in them being able to find those communicating, you know, those communities and being able to communicate and engage with them to increase engagement. So this is, this has been a culmination of that. And it seems to have happened in other countries as well. Um, you know, where, Social media can be used as a tool for radicalization. I mean, that was like, uh, you know, that was a big thing about ISIS and jihadi, jihadism. You know, like the, uh, you know, there were people out there who made the content and, you know, someone would, you know, get the first little thing and then, you know, the internet would feed them, you know, ever increasing amounts of it. And, you know, the the social media platforms got really good at filtering out jihadism. Um, but you know, like we've said before, you know, uh, I think Twitter tried to do a similar filter for, uh, racism and white nationalism. And it found out that it was going to, to sweep up re- elected Republicans in that filter. And, you know, that was basically deemed, uh, we can't do that. So, yeah. <laughs> Although this is a good time to pivot into the next phase of the discussion in that social media companies, however, now that, you know, (laughs) now that, you know, they're they're worried about Section 230 and that they know that there's going to be Democrats in control of the the Congress and of the White House and they're trying to play nice um, are now finally starting to take seriously the role that they play in giving a platform to people who do wish to spread violence and who do wish to spread uh, anti-government and really ultimately anti-American sentiment. Um, and so Donald Trump has been taken off of Twitter, Facebook, you know, the main um, social media platforms. We're seeing Twitter sweep up and delete white supremacist and other authoritarian leaning accounts. And we're seeing the conservative app parlay be deplatformed from the app store on Apple. And there has been a big backlash to that on grounds of freedom of speech. So Joe, do you think that uh, Donald Trump being removed from Twitter uh, has free speech implications? Hmm. 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 Well, if you define free speech as being able to have whatever platform you want, um, then yes, he has been a grave First Amendment violation on him. <laughs> grave. Um, but 
Yeah, has the Supreme Court ever looked into our constitutional right to force other people to follow us on Twitter? Right. I I, I think, <laughs> uh, what is it, Josh Hawley is looking into the constitutional right to have his book published. <laughs> um, I, Which is just also a bizarre story. Like, he, for those who don't know, Josh Hawley has been one of the main supporters of Trump in the Senate of his insurrection and uh he had a book deal with simon and schuster and uh they canceled that book deal and he was like but first amendment and it's like dude it's a book deal. like this is like the most like <laughs> like do we have a right to a book deal <laughs> like no because <laughs> that's the thing is we we have the right to self-publish to express our ideas free of government intervention but we we've talked about this on the show before we don't have the right to a platform you know especially joe a private and I platform absolutely yeah yeah joe and i have the right to make adequately informed and produce it ourselves and put it out for you to listen to but if all of the sudden um you know say spotify said hey we don't we you, your content doesn't fit with our values of spotify we're going to take you off spotify like too bad for us like yeah. that's spotify's decision they host us yeah you know and you know we can still have our own website which obviously is less efficient to getting listeners but that's all we're actually entitled to is to be able to make something ourselves and not be arrested for it nobody has to carry it i mean us. hell well, like joe was saying do, do do i have an infinite right to to a book deal to every megaphone that exists can joe and i walk up and demand that we become co-anchors on the weeds because you yeah. know free speech no absolutely <laughs> not i can't just submit an article to the new york times and demand it be published on grounds of free speech i deserve a half uh, hour show on fox news in the afternoon yeah that's the thing is that you know print media broadcast media makes decisions all the time and has forever about who is given access to that platform and it's just part of the daily business but all of a sudden, when a social media company wants to exert the same right, conservatives claim that they're somehow violating some constitutionally protected right, and it's bullshit, and I don't buy it for a second. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, this is this is like an old, I mean, it's been a day, but it's already an old hat comparison. Like, Donald Trump has a press room in his house. Like, yeah. <laughs> where there are reporters eagerly well i don't know if eagerly but they're there waiting to hear every word that he has to say like he is not at a dearth of opportunity to i've been really using the word dearth lately i like it but he is not at a dearth of opportunity to get his words out like not at all now maybe he feels hampered because he can most effectively do his whatever brand of him on Twitter. And, you know, whenever he goes and speaks in front of the camera, it's just word soup. But, um, <laughs> he does, he is not without opportunity to get his message out. I mean, he's the president of exactly. the United States. I don't think there's anybody in the world who gets more, you know, coverage, of, you know, their day-to-day -day whereabouts and whatever they say. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
<laughs> you know, if um, it, it's kind of something we talked about before when we were talking more about Section 230, if you don't like what Twitter's decision is, you can, you know, make your own Twitter. If you don't like the fact that Simon and Schuster won't publish your book, you get to publish your own book. But that's it. You know, yeah. you you can't say that you have the right to take advantage of other people's communication infrastructure to spread your own message. You can work with them and gain their permission to do so, or you can build up your own infrastructure. I mean, that's the way it works and has worked throughout history. I mean, I, you know, some people like to tout that they're like monopolies or something like that. And I, I've never really bought that. Um, but they're just the most lucrative platforms at this moment. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, I'm sure at certain times, like, you know, if you had, if you had a TV show that you're trying to pitch to networks, yeah, it would be way more lucrative to be on NBC than it would be to be on IFC. But, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you're not owed the bigger platform or even owed the lower platform. Um, you know, what if uh, it had been that Twitter had to... Well, this is the big thing with Parler. <laughs> you know, I was telling Evan about this before the show from reporting of Jane Coaston. You know, Parler actually has way stricter requirements to get onto its platform than Twitter does. I mean, Twitter basically has no requirements. I mean, you have to have an email address, I think, or a phone number. And I think that's it. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas to access certain features of Parler, like I think it may even be possible, like direct messaging, that it's you need to submit your social security number. And like a photo ID and like, I don't know, maybe they have to send a piece of mail to your house to the to verify that you live there or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like they have way more like scrutiny on it. And you know what? At like, and their version of free street free speech is, you know, it, it's almost just like the, you know, if, if uh, Twitter is the, liberal partial free speech then parlor is like the conservative par- partial free speech because you know parlor they tried to make it seem like it's a bastion of free speech and freedom and all this stuff but they don't allow pornography you know they don't allow even textual descriptions of pornography and but you can go on there and say you want to do an insurrection Whereas on Twitter, you can't say you want to do an insurrection, but you can post all the porn you want. Like, yeah, like it's selective parts of free speech. Yeah. Neither is freer than the other. They're both just choices. And obviously, as a society, we want to make sure that the choices are being made fairly and that decisions about content moderation are being applied equally. But and, you know, I'm not saying don't regulate big tech because I think there's definitely a role that the government should have in regulating big tech, although not necessarily through Section 230 reform Um off topic anyway um but the point is that neither is more free than the other in terms of speech they're decisions that are made and at least in the status quo the individual companies twitter 
parlay, uh, Facebook, whatever, have the right to make that. It's their call. Yeah. Not Trump's, not Josh Hawley's, no one else's. It's not Orwellian, you know? It's... No. <laughs> uh, like... It's not the government doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, someone being um, not given a platform is not Orwellian. Has anybody read 1984? Um, I have. I have. I think I've read it twice. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Or maybe there's not many books that I've read twice. Or maybe it was Animal Farm. I can't remember. I have not read Animal Farm. You know, it's it's in the same vein. It's good. I mean, um, but it's just it's uh, and it's just it's so disheartening to see that we still have one of the major political parties in the United States concerned more about culture war issues than what's actually happening. You know, there's plenty of Republican officials out there today who are bemoaning loss of Twitter followers from, you know, uh, you know, uh, Twitter's big sweep of bots and, you know, racists and insurrectionists. And, you know, they're complaining about Twitter followers where I think I said it before. We just had an insurrection. Um, people are wanting to overthrow the government. We are losing over 4,000 people a day to COVID. We are amidst a great economic recession with unemployment super high and without a real path forward. We have vaccines, but they're not being administered at a rapid rate to make sure that everybody gets it. And actually, we should we should pause here because this this vaccine. No, I, I, actually, I should let you finish your point. But then I want to come back to this vaccine thing. because yeah, It's really troubling. Yeah. I mean, all of that is happening. And it seems to be that there's a certain segment of the conservative world who is more concerned, actually concerned or publicly expressing concern that they're losing Twitter followers versus any of that, any of it at all. And those are the issues. And we have had Donald Trump in the office, a Republican Senate. And you know what? I Some people will say Democrats are obstructionists. They're obstructionists because they don't agree with things, not because they just want to. The obstruction that happened over the, the Obama years was often they would obstruct things that even Republicans would say that they would want. <laughs> like, like if you put, yeah. if you put forward a valid government plan of any sort of governance that actually achieves the goals and isn't just some backhanded way to give white people credence or make it harder for black people to vote or, you know, live in society, then I'm pretty sure Democrats will vote for it. You know, yeah. you know, it's 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 not really so much a poison pill for Democrats to work with Republicans. I mean, for some leftists, it is. But, you know, for the majority of the party, it isn't. It's expected. It's part of the game. If at any point in this, Donald Trump had come together with his Republican colleagues to put together any sort of effective covid response or, uh, you know, uh, stimulus or anything like that, I'm pretty sure you would get Democrats 
to support it. And Democrats wouldn't support it, you know, wouldn't withhold support just because it came from Republicans. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. And, and, you know, we just choose to, you know, fucking Ted Cruz. Like, he is, he is a shit stain on our society. And you know what? I'll go, yeah, I'll, I'll go out and say it. He's, <laughs> he's, he's revealing himself more and more every like, day. He is perfectly fine with the coup attempt. And he's like offended that we would insinuate that he had anything to do it when he has been propping up the whole damn conspiracy theory the whole damn time. Yeah. So just to kind of sub- to uh, fill in a little bit of background information, I'm guessing they've picked this up by now. But so the reason why January 6th was important, because that's the day that Congress is meeting to certify the Electoral College vote. However, a group of senators announced that they would object to the certification from certain states. And this offered official legitimacy to these, again, completely baseless and without evidentiary claims that somehow the election was stolen or that there were irregularities. And it was basically Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley were the two most vocal of them. But unfortunately, uh, my own senator, Mike Braun, was also among that Republican group of senators. Although something I think was really interesting is that Todd Young, the other senator from Indiana, who had been one of the biggest Trump ass kissers in the entire Republican caucus, did not sign on to that letter and never stated that he would object. So I, I, wa- I wonder if that was I, I wonder why. Like, I think he kind of saw the writing on the wall and was smarter in this instance than Braun was. Although after the coup attempt, Braun did vote to certify um, the election results. But anyway, well, it's like Ted Cruz, I mean, by by offering this official objection, basically said to the conspiracy theorists, yes, you are right to be angry because something is wrong, even though there's no evidence that it is. Yeah, he, he refused after the insurrection. To, like, back down. And that's really something. Like, apparently... Because Ted Cruz... Ted Cruz is a bright guy. He knows. He knows that there's no legal case to challenge this election. But he thinks it's politically expedient for him to retain the favor of that base. And so... He's willing to put up with, you know, a little coup attempt here and there. As long as he doesn't piss off the ultra-conservatives who might vote for him in Texas. Yeah. He, uh... You know, he's just playing it out. It's just, I mean, the dude, the dude is basically just ambition. I mean, yeah, it, he, it does not seem like there's been a, you know, a single thing that he's truly for. Um, and you know, he just, he just, just trying to, I don't know, edge out that, that side of the, the party and, I don't know. I mean, you know, in 2016, he got what? Like, he was the last runner-up before Trump. Like, he was the last person to stay in the race. So, you know, he mm-hmm. definitely has some bite, you know. In, uh And if you remember, at the GOP convention, he got a speech and he refused to endorse Trump. He ended his speech by saying, vote your conscience. So clearly at the time, he knew something wasn't quite right about Trump. But since Trump has been in office, he's just moved his nose farther and farther up Trump's ass. Yeah. And so it's just really disheartening. You know, I, 
you know, it's not shocking still. It's not surprising. You know, this has been building up for a good long time. This, this, this isn't anything out of character. But through the Trump years, we kept like there was this lie that, or it feels like at least a lie that someday there would be something, something that would break the fever, something that would break the Republicans party able to support him. And, you know, over the years, there have been a number of members who have had their last straw, but they effectively get pushed out of the party and no longer able to be part of it. And like, uh, who was it? Justin Amash um, was a uh, representative from Michigan and he left the party and he got voted out. Well, he didn't seek re-election because he knew he would be voted out. But yeah. about yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> the guy the guy is uh, out there tweeting a lot. I don't think he was uh, lacking ambition. So, but I mean, you know, he he left and he was effectively pushed out of the party. Like, I mean, fuck, Mitt Romney the other day was just like getting on a plane from Utah and was getting harassed by a crowd at the airport that he was like some sort of traitor. Um, yeah, the the thing with Mitt Romney is really interesting to me because before Trump, he was the person who Republicans picked to be their standard bearer. And now, just eight years later, he's being called a rhino and a Democrat and a traitor, despite the fact that his policy positions haven't changed. He's still Mitt Romney, but because he sees through Trump and what Trump is, somehow he's he's not loyal to the party and he's not one of them anymore, despite the fact that before Trump, he was literally the standard bearer for the Republican Party. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it was also just a product of the time. Like, I, I think we have, like, I feel like McRomney's case feels like almost extra special in the case of electoral politics. Like, you know, think about John Kerry. John Kerry lost to George Bush and Democrats really hated George Bush in 2004. And, you know, there was animosity towards John Kerry, but it, he wasn't like kicked out of the party. Like, yeah. You know, he was still, you know, part of the establishment of the party. He kept on doing things, whether, you know, if he wasn't in elected office, he was doing. He was in the cabinet. I mean, yeah. I mean, he ended up being in the cabinet um, further down the road. Um, but like he was still part of the party, still active in it, still, you know, one of the big papas. Um, whereas Mitt Romney, there was it just seemed like a, a time of the moment where. In 2012, it just seemed like Republicans had, you know, they had been ginned up with such hatred for Obama that, oh, this guy was such a loser. He wore a tan suit. You know, his <laughs> his economic recovery has been horrible. He socialized medicines. The death panels are coming, which I still want to know when they're coming. <laughs> but I think they're waiting on the Soros checks. Yeah, the Soros checks. The uh, you know, the episode's <laughs> over now. Um <laughs> but he and then Mitt Romney lost 
to Obama. And I guess enough of the Republican base that thought that that should have been a slam dunk, easily winnable election. And he didn't. And so Mitt Romney, in a in res- some respects, really was kind of cast out of the party for a good while. Now, he is a Republican senator now, but he did have to move out to, to Utah, Utah, where the politics, yeah, yeah, where the politics are more exactly. and it's a different Republican Party out there that rules. Like they're not like the rest of the. And he is uniquely suited to thrive in that climate. Like yes, <laughs> so he was essentially cast out. You know, he wasn't doing the talk shows. Nobody was wanting him to come and speak at their conferences. You know, he wasn't doing. You know, he wasn't being invited to rallies to try and, you know, bolster Republican support for things. I mean, it also doesn't help that the next person who came along was Donald Trump. But yeah, and he was one of those people who kind of took a you know, more principled stand at the time. I mean, people like to to point that he took Donald Trump's endorsement in 2012 graciously. But at the time, Trump was not a wannabe authoritarian or at least clearly uh, you know, known to society to be Joe. That in 2012 is when Donald Trump was just some guy. Donald Trump was just some guy in 2012. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can get behind that. In 2012, Donald Trump was just some guy, a really kooky guy, but still just some guy. Like again, I want to establish: becoming president doesn't mean you lose guy status, <laughs> but. Through the intervening years since 2012, Donald Trump is no longer just some guy. Um, Twitter, I think, has a lot to do with it. But so <laughs> Mitt Romney is just, I don't know, he's hes hes something else. He was the standard bearer and now, you know, he's being cast aside. Lindsey Graham has also been getting harassed. You know, he's, uh, you know, he's also been a chief ass kisser of Donald Trump. And then he breaks, you know, at this very last moment, you know, and all of a sudden he's the big traitor. Um, and, you know, I, I did see a, uh, you know, this post, you know, that, you know, there was, uh, I think it was Rep. Peter Meyer in Michigan, actually the guy who replaced Justin Amash. Um, he wrote in, I think it was Reason Magazine, that you know, some him and some of his colleagues, you know, they believed the whole thing was a charade, but they still voted to overturn the election because they were fearful for their families. Which you know, coming mm-hmm. out with that after the fact doesn't really make it right, <laughs> but it's an at least an explanation. Which is totally valid because like, I don't know, I, I, you know, remember in like 2017 or 2018 when some guy just sent pipe bombs to Democrats all over. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Like, and people get harassed and all this stuff and all the time and, and the threats are way, you know, like, I don't know. What's a fucking left wing threat? Oh, you fucking corporatist sellout. You pig, you're in line with the cops, you're you're a corporatist. I already said that. Apparently that's the worst thing I can come <laughs> up with. You know, you're the bourgeois, you know, fuck you. Whereas right wing people were like, 
You are a threat to society. I believe this so much that I am going to dedicate myself to hunting you down and getting you at the exact moment when you're going to, you know, be your weakest. And then I'm going to strike and everyone's going to know. And then we're going to overthrow society by, you know, you know. Well, it almost happened in Michigan, too. It almost happened in Michigan. It almost happened on the 6th. It almost happened. Like... Evan, you said it in your introduction, but reporting has come out that at 2.15 that day, they were able to get all the senators out of the Senate chamber and seal the chamber. And at 2.16, the protesters broke into the chamber. One minute. One minute. If the protesters... No, the rioters, the insurrectionists had been able to get in there like two minutes earlier. Then they may have taken senators hostage or worse. Like they were there to do that. This wasn't just, yeah, you know, oh, we overwhelmed them and we're here showing our support. No, they showed up. <laughs> they showed up. Ready to go. They were yep. ready. And... This is not the time to downplay this because, you know, like you said, you the the quirks of the timing, thankfully, kept all of the you know members of Congress safe. Although that's not true for the D.C. police who did lose uh, one. Or did did they confirm a second death, or is it still just one D.C. police officer? Know, I, you know, capital officer I, who was murdered. I don't know if that talk about like that stuff that was coming out today was information about the one officer or was an additional officer. But we know at least one. All right, so we're not adequately informed on this, but. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, you know, they they killed some. The scope is the same. Lo- <laughs> One or two people. Yeah. The scope of the issue is still the same. Um, like when 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 history talks about this, we're already past the point where we can say this was a peaceful transition of power. American lives have been shed over certifying the results of a free and fair election. And that's scary. And we should say that it's scary and not try to hem and haw and hedge against what has happened and what still might happen between now and the 20th. Yeah. Like some like somebody, you you know, uh, Jane Coaston always brings the best stuff up on Twitter. She finds. And it's like somebody was like, oh, some, you know, Trump. I don't think Trump's going to do anymore. We shouldn't impeach him because, you know. He touched the hot stone and now he knows it's hot. Like, the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) He's been touching the hot stone the whole four years. He's been holding on to it like a masochist. (laughs) And, like, again, like we said earlier, he's going to ramp this up. I mean, at least I'm pretty sure. Why wouldn't he? Like, why, why wouldn't, he? wouldn't he? I don't think he's just if given nothing up. happens to him. If there's no legal consequences, and again, legal consequences, we want you know, we we want to see legal means taken to you know, sort of constrain Trump. Legal means only. Um, if if that doesn't happen though, if that doesn't come through, why wouldn't he? continue to feed into what has been powering him this entire time. Yeah. 
Like I, I feel like to get through this moment as a society with any shred of dignity, we have to oust him. Like the guy promoted an insurrection against the government. Our government, our constitutionally democratically elected government. And he was willing to accept the overthrow of it, only downplaying it once it maybe seemed like it wasn't going to pan out and that he may be able to face serious consequences for it, which he may still could. But, yeah, but we need to do something about it. Like, we impeached the dude and we didn't remove him. And, you know, it, it just keeps on being, oh, what can he do? <laughs> what could he do? Like, people are like, oh, what's he going to do? There's only, there's only a year left. There's only, <laughs> there's only three months ten left. Days left. Yeah. There's only 10 days left. I, eh. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I'm not holding out much hope for impeachment. Um, but like you said, I think it would be a good move. I think that there is kind of growing bipartisan support in a way there wasn't this time last year. Because uh, remember, he got impeached this time last year yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, was not ultimately removed. But now it seems like there's more people coming out saying, no, yeah, that would be good. But I, I just don't see the time horizon working out on it. Um, so then, you know, you could always invoke the 25th Amendment, but his cabinet secretaries are resigning left and right rather than facing that. Yeah choice so that's not going to happen so you're right joe i would love to see a world in which one of those two peaceful legal options are used to remove trump from office prior to the the joe biden inauguration but i think we're just going to have to wait it out and hope that uh we're a little bit more prepared for the next insurrection attempt because that seems to be where it's yep where it's trending yeah it's it's trending well, but not on Twitter because yeah. Twitter banned him. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, I, I, I feel like we crescendoed on that. I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about vaccines. You wanted to get into this. Yeah. So um, in addition to all of this nutso shit going on with our democracy, um, we are still in the middle of the COVID pandemic, losing 4,000 people a day, more than a 9-11's worth of people a day, much more than, you know, the flu kills or any other similarly infectious disease kills. Uh, we're, we're just uh, experiencing this mass death on a daily basis in every state of the country. And... Going into this, we thought that our best shot to end this and save lives was going to be to develop a vaccine. And so really industrious researchers around the country and around the world worked tirelessly to attempt to pull off the fastest vaccine development in human history. And guess what? They did. 
They fucking did it. We have several safe and over 90% effective vaccines. And while, yes, you want vaccines to be 100% effective in terms of uh, on a population setting, hell, even a 50% effective vaccine could significantly well, yeah, they were gonna reduce approve the amount 50% of cases. or higher, basically. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so we've got several different vaccines that are over 90% effective. But... Those vaccines do nothing for us if they don't get into the (laughs) systems of people. And that is the problem that we're faced with now. We have under-ordered doses of vaccines from the pharmaceutical companies, and even the doses that we do have are being rolled out slowly due to poor federal, municipal, state-level coordination. So we're facing a, 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 a situation where... We did it. We accomplished one of the most inspiring medical breakthroughs of human history in developing this vaccine. And we're now dealing with the fact that it won't actually make the big positive impact that it should because either the doses of the vaccine are going to expire without ever being given to people or the virus is going to mutate in a way that it becomes far enough away from the original virus to make the vaccines irrelevant. And it is baffling to me that we have a country with the scientific tools to develop a vaccine in record time and without the political tools and the social tools to administer that vaccine to the very people that it is supposed to save. I mean, we spent the last 40 years tearing down the bureaucracy, and this is really a bureaucracy issue. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, but yeah, like Donald Trump wants to take credit for Operation Warp Speed, which, you know, it's great for getting the vaccine developed, but, you know, it's kind of like what I've told, you know, I, I'm in truck driving. I manage truck drivers, and I've told some of them this before. You know, you know, sometimes they'll get to a place and have an issue trying to put their trailer into the dock door, you know, to deliver it. And they'll be like, oh, can I just leave it out here? And I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter if the trailer is a thousand miles away or three feet away. It's not delivered. (laughs) You know, it has to be there. You know, it doesn't matter if we have all these doses of vaccine and it's developed. It has to be in people's arms. Yeah. <laughs> like it has to get there. And we have to do as many as possible. Like, oh my gosh. You know, like, we, we you just have to do it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. I, I mean, maybe people didn't think that this was actually going to happen, but. Well, and then we're also just seeing the failure of governance. I mean, I, I've seen some pieces on this where, you know, also in like, you know, like democratically controlled states where there there's just so many confused, like in New York, there are three groups, like there are like three boarding groups for vaccine. Each of those groups is broken into several subgroups and Group 1A even has two tiers to it. Gosh. And Cuomo basically made it that it's, you know, strict penalties for anyone, you know, who goes outside of the official tier list. 
And it's like, no, <laughs> like we should be shoveling it out the door. Like I agree that healthcare workers and, and old people need to be prioritized, but you don't have to vaccinate the entirety of those populations before you vaccinate anybody else. And we're, there is also some hesitation on some of those people of the population. And if they hesitate, you should give it to the next willing person. Yeah. Like, because what, what good does it do to say that X person gets it first and if they choose not to or they're slow on it, then it's better to let that vaccine expire in a freezer somewhere yeah. than to give it to someone technically out of order. Yeah. We just need to be shoveling it out there. You know, I, to use Matthew Iglesias's uh, metaphor, we need to park a dump truck full of money outside of Pfizer and get them to pump out more doses. <laughs> like, like, you know, some people like to get into the, you know, the, oh, you know, this costs this much and they're making this profit and blah, 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 blah. I don't care. We need it now. Like, <laughs> you know, this, this isn't like getting your wing nuts as a government supplier, you know, where you can haggle and, you know, some lesser product and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, if things aren't super efficient, you know, it's not life or death. This is life or death. Yeah. I don't give, give Pfizer a million, a billion, three billion, 20 billion. If we get everybody vaccinated by July and we give Pfizer a trillion dollars, what the fuck does it matter? Yeah, you know, it's it's what's what's the value of each marginal life that we can save that way. And we all want to go and back to our lives. We yeah. all want to. I want to go to a bar. Joe, <laughs> Joe, I want to go to a bar. I want to go to the gym. I want to go to a fucking movie theater. I want to sit I want to go I want to sit at the counter at a diner. I want to I, I, I want I want mac and cheese. I know I can have that already, but it just I just want it. <laughs> like <laughs> uh, I wanna I, I wanna go and volunteer somewhere. I, I wanna, wanna get involved in the community. People. I wanna see Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wanna be a part of my community and see my friends. And not that I, you know, haven't seen anybody, but I've definitely restricted what I've been able to yeah. do and what I've felt comfortable doing. Like, yeah, I've seen um, friends, but then there's also always like the aura of, you know, you know, you know, there's a pandemic going on, you know, trying. And then, you know, some people don't come because, you know, they, you know, they have a credible theory, fear of, you know, the fucking pandemic. And yeah, it's like, um, we all just want to get on with our lives. You know, I don't like wearing a mask, but I do it. I wouldn't think of not but doing it. If you could it. not do it. Yeah, if I could not do if it. If we could all be better. vaccinated, that would be better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, we all want to get back to our lives. You know, if we if we gave Moderna a trillion dollars and they got it done by March, I think that's a, val a valuable trade off. So let's give them ten trillion dollars. Whoa, now. <laughs> let's just play the number game where we any number is it works it's just let's give them 40 cents i think you know 40 cents that's a killer deal <laughs> but but then also sadly 
a lot of these deals really needed to be made like a year ago before or like yeah. six months ago. Like I remember seeing this uh, profile of this guy who uh, ran a company that made per, pers- PPE. He made, you know, personal protective equipment and he, he was seeing this early on and, you know, he made a, you know, wrote a letter to like Trump, the Trump administration. And, you know, I know of, who you're talking about. Yeah, I've seen this yeah, health this officials. Thing, yeah. And he was like, Hey, this is coming and we are not equipped to be able to meet the demand of what's going to be coming. Um, but but if you placed a large order now, then we could effectively ramp up production yeah. so that it's ready for once it's actually needed. Right, because if you do a big bulk order, then you know that guy can go to investors or banks or whoever and get the capital needed to build another plant or you know whatever it is to be able to increase production capacity. But without that big order. It was just kind of on the whim of things. And then by the time the wave is already happening, it's too late to build up that extra capacity because once you're in it, you have no idea how long it's going to last. So maybe if last year we had gone to Moderna or Pfizer or whoever and said, you know, we already bulk porch, you know, I think we we purchased like a hundred million from each of the big three who have made vaccines that are valid. Like, why didn't we purchase enough from each for the whole country? And then if we just have extra doses left over, then we can give it out to the world as, you know, I don't know, good relations or some shit. But we didn't. And and you know, if we had given them if we had purchased more vaccines, then they could have ramped up production. You know, they could have used that capital or used that purchase order to uh, validate, you know, the, you know, open up capital to them that they otherwise wouldn't have because the bet was less risky and to build more manufacturing capacity in order to meet the demands of what was needed. But now they're in it. And they're not going to build new manufacturing facilities for a vaccine that's already in development and is known to have a finite supply and already has a finite number of purchases. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just not how that stuff works. Um, You know, now that they're in it, they're just going to try and make it work on whatever they have now. Now, who knows? I'm not adequately informed on the subject, but... (laughs) Like, (laughs) I'm just exasperated. (laughs) Like, shoot me up now with the vaccine. I want to go sit at a bakery, you know? (laughs) Yes, I mean, I'll take the vaccine. I think if it's targeted, I'm a horrible person to give the vaccine to because, you know, I just do some remote work. And other than that, you know, I go to Kroger once a week, so... I mean, I'm not, I'm not really the most at risk, but my wife is a school teacher and they're, well, you know, a speech therapist and, and they're going to be going back to school in person. I would love it if she could get a vaccine. That would be really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, because basically the state of Indiana and Indianapolis public schools said, eh, we're, we're just going to send you back. 
know what's crazy? So, what? You know, I saw something where it's like when they finally got the the vaccine for influenza, the the Spanish flu, you know, back in the, you know, a hundred years ago, they vaccinated something like, like in New York, they vaccinated like 5 million people in like a week. Wow. Yeah. It can be done. Like, I am just shocked. Shocked. The more time goes on that how many issues we have in society that was effectively solved by early 20th century planners. <laughs> like, like there was just something about the gumption and can do itness and all that stuff. I mean, may, I mean, who knows? Maybe we layered on too many levels of bureaucracy or we don't have enough layers of bureaucracy or, or we just don't have enough will to actually make the decisions that need to be made. But it's just not happening right now. I mean, Evan, I think this, you know, something like this just ends up like, even though this was a Republican administration who handled this, it still ends up getting chalked up to the, we can't trust our government to do anything effectively, which effectively hurts Democrats because their stick is that government can do things effectively. Now, hopefully Joe Biden can come in and, uh, you know, everything's just such a mess. I don't know what details need to be fixed at the executive level, but hopefully he fixes them. I mean, this is like, you know, out of all the cases of what, you know, people dis, you know, like or dislike and his strengths or weaknesses, I think a tragedy like this may play into his strong suits. But yeah, but who knows? I hope something. Who's to say? Who's uh, I'm to say. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's that little bit of shimmer of hope, but we have. I mean, at, when people are listening to this, nine days until Joe Biden is installed into office, and if, <laughs> if, and you know, it's just crazy. Is like he's the president elect, and. You would almost not know it. Like with all the stuff that's happening, like all the lunacy and craziness that's happening, you wouldn't know it. And I, you know, some people would, would use that as a dig against him that he's like not on Twitter and, you know, not having snappy snapbacks to, you know, whatever the day's thing is, but, you know, just operating in the background and hopefully it works out. Um, I just hope, I hope. Because I hope so too. Yeah, we are. This is a, this is, you know, I feel like our entire series of this podcast has just been coming to you at dark moments of American democracy (laughs) and somehow they keep getting darker. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, especially I think with, with kind of the impeachment last year, we've been on that trend for about 12 months now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hell, we even did it when we did our year of 2019 and decade wrap ups, you know, like, yeah, we, you know, which we didn't do this year. Sorry, guys, I've been busy at work. Um, (laughs) um, But um, yeah, it's just been a lot of, you know, it's going to be weird, you know, possibly living in a post Trump world like, 
you know, where all my podcasts don't have to immediately respond to whatever was going on this week, you know, where they can just kind of go to, I don't know, some, you know, regularly scheduled programming, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I want to kind of offer maybe some connections and some summary and maybe draw some, some thematic links between everything that we've been talking about here today. It seems like whether it's a vaccine rollout or, you know, whether or not we believe that elections are free and fair, there seems to be this tension between two conceptualizations of the United States federal government and maybe government in general. We're kind of asking as a society, is government this oppressive superstructure that constrains our actions or is government a formal representation of all of us that can leverage collective action and collective resources for the collective good? And I think that most people would agree that at times it's both. You know, sometimes the government can get in its own way. And sometimes being able to tap into that collective action and collective resources can produce undeniable social benefit. But here's what I also think is true, is that what we think about it influences what it becomes. We can pull it as a society and as a demos in one way or the other. So if you think that government is just oppressive and you don't want it to work, your voting behavior and your other democratic behavior can make that more true. Mm -hmm. But... If you want society to work well and you want government to be an effective functionary in the lives of everyday Americans and you vote like that's true and you organize like that's true and you speak and act like that's true, I think we can make that more true as well. Yeah. And I really hope that I'm right. I'll, I'll even there's another dimension we could take that analogy where. You know, the people who are traditionally, you know, of, you know, the push the, you know, kind of anti-government things. If you actually go and look to the thought leaders of kind of like libertarianism, you know, the more serious ones, um, they don't often argue that just no government. They're often against the federal government um, as a construct where they'll accept like local governance and see that as valid but see the federal government as an overreach, but their rhetoric gets tacked on to just anti-government in general. And oftentimes they use that to make the government worse instead of more effective because mm -hmm. they, they don't believe it. Well, the same thing happened with the election. Like the people who... I don't know. It, it's just like people were purveying in something and who knows, maybe even a good few people maybe in good faith were purveying that there are issues with the election and maybe we should check it out and maybe we should do an audit or, you know, what have you. But all of that got used to justify an insurrection. <laughs> yeah. Like some people maybe can make, I mean, this is, this is, this is the whole culture wars, PC canceling, whatever the fuck you want on a political opinions. This is the dig on Ben Shapiro. It's that maybe in a vacuum, 
you can have these concerns and, and, and voice them and we should hear them out and, you know, talk it out. But what happens when you air those certain set of concerns and not explore it fully is that you let you, you get a group of people to end up thinking bigger and thinking it's unresolved and thinking and going further and radicalizing. Like, you know, maybe Ben Shapiro is, you know, maybe not cool with transgender people, but he would never like, you know, uh, you know, do violence against them, advocate for violence against them or anything like that. But then somebody hears his speech on transgender people and then goes and use, you know, gins helps gin up violence for, against transgender people or something like that. Because that was just the one example I could think of. We're, we're just in a, in a scenario where it's, it's like we do political thought theater and one side kind of dances around being revolutionary and, you know, authoritarian and apparently it's all for show, but even more apparently people actually take it seriously. Yeah. That's why uh, our words have value. They have consequences and that's why people talk about rhetorical violence or, or these other types of things, things that even if you're not necessarily advocating for violence can easily be used as justification by others for violence. And it's something that we continue to reckon with. And this reckoning was brought to you by Squarespace. I don't know. Squarespace, when your space is too round. Yeah. Make it a Squarespace. Well... I I think that's it. I think that's it. That's it. Um, we would like to thank you all for listening. I will say, hopefully, in the near future, we will be returning to a more regular schedule because I got a new job that will have more time in my life for things. So that should be good. Congrats! Thanks. Um, I'm not learning about this for the first time. But I have to performatively congratulate <laughs> yeah, him yeah. for all of you. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so hopefully there will be more adequately informed that hopefully we can do more. Um, who knows? Maybe some tasty things in the pipeline. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I guess we'll have to figure those out. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, I'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music as well. But uh, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.